Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by TennisExpress.com. Please check them out by going to EssentialTennis.com slash express. Thank you very much for joining me on today's show during this busy holiday season. Speaking of which, I just got back into town a couple hours ago. It's kind of funny. The uh, Last time I was at my home here in Maryland, I was just recording the intro for podcast number 149 before I headed out the door. And as I'm sitting here right now, it's it's Monday and my wife and I and Lucy just got back in town. So I'm going to be doing another uh, recorded show here. And I'm going to be re-releasing here another show that I thought was really, really good because to be honest, I just had no time to put together a completely new episode. So I apologize, but I know today's episode is going to be great, especially for those of you who have not heard it before. And if you have, it's great review anyway. Mental tennis topics and mental tennis, uh, getting tougher mentally in your tennis game is such an important thing. And so today you're going to be listening to an episode, actually the first episode I ever did with Dr. Cohn, who's a mental toughness expert. So I hope you guys enjoy today's episode, my conversation with him. Two quick things before we get to that. First of all, I want to thank all of you who voted for the Essential Tennis Podcast at podcastawards.com. Unfortunately, the Essential Tennis Podcast didn't win the top award, but in watching the awards ceremony, I I learned that over 3,000 shows were nominated for awards at podcastawards.com, and and that's across all of the different categories. So, you know, not 3,000 shows for sports, but 3,000 total shows, and they were all put into their correct uh, category and then voted on from there and only the top 10 shows in each category were even able to be voted on so for essential tennis to make the the top 10 i'm really proud about that and i I thank all of you guys who voted to to get it to that spot and the the category was won by a show that espn produces (laughs) so i'm not i'm not terribly disappointed to uh to lose the espn but in the future, I would really love to win that award, and I, I know it's possible. And I, just in general, I want to thank you guys for your support, and uh, especially to all of you guys who voted to try to make that happen. We'll try again next year. And lastly, before we get to my interview with Dr. Cohn, I asked you guys last week to submit a holiday greeting, call into the Essential Tennis Hotline and record your your name, your location, and a holiday greeting. I got a bunch of those, and I'm going to save those for the end of the show. So thank you guys, uh, all, all of you who called in to record your greeting. Really, really cool. I, I enjoyed hearing from all of you and the, the various greetings that you guys extended to myself and, and to the Essential Tennis listeners. It was really cool to hear. So thank you all who participated and and did that and those are all going to be lined up at, at the end of the show all right let's get down to business sit back relax and get ready for some great tennis instruction
My guest with me today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Dr. Patrick Cohn. Dr. Patrick Cohn works with many nationally ranked junior players on their mental game, and he is the host of the Tennis Psychology Podcast, which you guys can find on iTunes and also on his website, which is sportspsychologytennis.com. Dr. Cohn, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Ian. You bet. I'm, I'm always excited to have new guests on, on the podcast. I, I like talking back and forth with tennis experts. And one of the most common topics that gets talked about here on the Essential Tennis Podcast is the mental game. I, I really like talking about tennis and, and where the mental game fits in. I, I think it's a, an area that your average level tennis player can really see big strides and big improvements to their game by getting good information about how to strengthen themselves mentally. And so I, it's really great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to answering the questions that we have from, from the listeners of the show. Uh, so thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about what you do. I know that you work with nationally ranked juniors. Do you work with um, any kind of club level or uh, average level tennis players as well? Or do you normally uh, just interact with upper level players? It's usually, you know, high-level amateur or junior players, uh, nationally ranked junior players, um, for the most part, that are going to hire me to work on the mental game. And, you know, I want to do a little offshoot of what you talked about earlier, Ian, and I think the mental game can be often neglected by players until there's until they realize that there's there's a problem or a challenge, and that's unfortunate. You know, it's unfortunate in my work that players feel like they need to be in a slump or, or they have a real mental game issue, like they've lost all their confidence or they can't take their practice game to matches, for example, before they decide on, well, maybe it's the mental game issues. And I don't think it should be that way. I think players need to educate themselves and learn more and more as their game improves they need to learn more and more and educate themselves about the mental game. To me, the mental game is like physical training. You know, the more physical training you do to improve your fitness, um, um, it's similar with the, with the mental game. The more you do mental training, the better you're going to get with your, with your mental game. And that, that's how I want players to perceive the mental game. It's not about, you know, solving problems all the time. It's about just getting better. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree uh, with several points that you made there. First of all, yeah, your your average level club player, I think, probably considers the mental side of the game something that's not terribly important. And I, I think you're right. Most players probably wait until there's really a big problem <laughs> before they start to address it, which is a shame because if you're mentally tough. Uh, that can that can really be a huge advantage out there on the tennis court since you and your opponents are both out there on you know completely on your own you're you don't have a coach you don't have a teammate unless it's doubles and you've got to kind of coach yourself through the mental challenges and struggles and so that's why I love having guys like you on the podcast and as far as building up your your strength or your your toughness mentally I, I've had a, another mental tennis expert on the show a couple of times who refers to that as mental muscle, which I, I like that phrase a lot. But you're right. It's like practicing any other part of the game. It's it's something that listeners of this show and any player can get stronger at. So 
thanks very much for being here. Let's go ahead and start getting into the questions here. I posted on the forums at EssentialTennis.com and asked for topic suggestions. And we're, the doctor and I are going to be answering several of these questions, um, maybe three or four. We'll see how many we have time for. Typically, time runs over and I don't get to as much as I want to. But our first one is going to be a question from Brian Mark, who comes to us from Nebraska. He wrote and asked, how about letting go of double faults and preparing to hit the next serve? It seems that once I hit one, I start to worry about the next one and create self-fulfilling prophecies. Then nights like tonight, I only hit one in a set and wonder why I don't always do that. Seems like tournaments bring out the worst in my serve. And Brian said he had 23 double faults last weekend in a match, which is it definitely makes it tough to win, Brian. And, and thank you very much for posting that question. And Dr. Cohen, what do you think? What's the best way for, for players to let go of, you know, kind of a letdown there? Obviously, we don't want a double fault, and it's a free point. How do we let go of the disappointment of giving away something like that? Well, Brian described it as a self-fulfilling prophecy, and not everybody m- might understand that, Ian. So maybe I should start from there. Sure. When a player makes a double fault and they, they engage in this, this what I call here-I-go-again thinking, here I go again, double faulting the match away, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, you start to think that, oh, I'm going to double fault again, or it's just one of those nights where uh, where uh, I'm into that double fault mode. And that's what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. You talk yourself into it, and now you think you're double faulting a lot during the match, and, and it just, you know, double faults turn into more double faults. That's really what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. Okay, so... You have to be obviously careful for, with that, and I, I can speak to that. But I think what, what's happening in, in Brian's case is he's making what's called a generalization, and it's related to this self-fulfilling prophecy. A generalization is if I start the match early with double faults, I'm going to continue making double faults. In other words, he generalizes based upon past matches that if he starts – with making double faults that it's going to continue for him. And that's a really dangerous mindset, that generalization. So maybe the first step is he's got to be very, very careful about the here-we-go-agains and making those generalizations about the double faults. Okay. With that said, I also think what happens based upon my experience working with players is when they double fault, they get it into their head that they don't want to do it again right? Meaning now they're protecting the double fault. They don't want to make more double faults. What am I focused on right now? I'm focused on not double faulting again. That's one of the worst focuses you could have when you're serving is to get up to the line and think, oh, I don't want to have another double fault. (laughs) Now you're only focused on the double fault. And and that's (laughs) really a bad mindset to be in. So the goal needs to be obviously, is to not focus on the negative and not focus on what you don't want to do in that situation. The goal needs to be to focus on the ingredients that's going to help you hit a good serve, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, the ingredients of hitting a good serve has to do with having a plan, right? What type of serve you're going to hit if you've got different options, um, if you, if you can hit that kicker serve or hit that flat serve, if you have those different options, what's the target, 
based upon what's working. You're going to go out wide down the line. You know, what's working for you and what is your target? I call that the planning stage. Then you want to go ahead and, and visualize or feel a good serve or experience yourself hitting a good serve, whatever that means for you. It could be visualizing the trajectory. It could be just feeling solid contact. Whatever works for you, it's, it's very individual for each player. Um, and then you're going to go through the rest of your routine at the line where you're bouncing the ball, you're trying to create a rhythm, and then you're focusing on the target, for example. So that's what I mean. In a general sense, that's what I mean by the ingredients of a good serve, right? You cannot focus on the ingredients of a good serve if you're afraid of double faulting the match away, if you're afraid of missing the service box on your second serve, for example. Sure. Um, you have to be very disciplined with your mind and be able to focus on the ingredients that are going to help you hit a serve. As soon as you get defensive and you're protecting the double fault, you're basically done. I, I really like the, uh, the process that you laid out and the, uh, the ingredients that you, uh, that you gave us there, you know, kind of a recipe for success. And what I like so much about it, Patrick, is that you're giving us so many positive things that should be focused on the, the target, the, uh, the, you know, the process feeling, you know, or thinking about hitting, making good contact, going through that whole planning phase and every part of it was, was a positive thought or a positive emotion was attached to it as opposed to what, what Brian is saying, um, that, you know, as you said the Oh, here we go again type thing where it, which is clearly negative. And once, uh, you know, once that prophecy is fulfilled once, obviously the tendency is going to be to kind of go in that down, downward spiral and just continue to repeat that again and again. And emotionally, you know, the person gets more and more negative. Uh, but what I love about what you're talking about is these are all positive thoughts, all positive emotions. And top-level athletes are continuously optimistic. And it's, there's never even a, a thought in their mind. Well, I mean, there is sometimes, but that the vast majority of their thoughts are, oh, I'm going to make this shot. I'm going uh, to hit my target. I'm going to hit a good shot. And it's just, you know, it, the inner dialogue is so positive and intense. And so what I'm hearing you say is Brian has got to reverse his inner dialogue. It's got to be more positive, more optimistic, and hopefully the results will follow. Is that correct? Well, absolutely. There's always two sides of the coin, as you talked about. You know, there's, there's the players that go out there and try to avoid failure, avoid missing shots, avoid missing the easy volley or the routine shot, avoid the double fault, which, you know, is very easy to get sucked into, uh, as opposed to there's the players that strive for success and are always focused on what they want to do to execute that shot. And that's where you need to be throughout the match it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the service it's any shot that you're hitting you can i shouldn't say you can never i mean you could certainly play that way but it's not going to be a way to play your best tennis if you're focused on what not to do and yeah. avoiding errors yep that's the classic uh playing not to lose instead of playing the win and best the best athletes and competitors in the world are, are constantly playing to win they're they're playing towards their best shots and that's usually what happens for them as opposed to uh, the opposite. Uh, well, good stuff. Anything else on that topic, Patrick, before we move on to, uh, to our, our next question? 
Well, certainly you have to have confidence in your ability uh, to hit the serve. If you can, you know, in practice, if you can, um, you know, minimize those double faults, obviously, and if you can increase your first serve percentage, um, that's going to go a long way too, because then you don't, you don't have um, some of the challenges with worrying about having to get that second serve in because you're getting, you know, you have a better first serve percentage. So for Brian, a good goal might be to go out there and, and focus on a strong first serve percentage rather than minimizing, you know, uh, doubles. Sure. All right. Good stuff. Well, let's go on to our next question. And that is going to be from BB who lives in North Carolina. She wrote and said, I've been fascinated with crowd mentality. By this, I mean how a person plays when a crowd is watching. The pros usually use this to their advantage, playing to the crowd for show, while rec players have a tendency to break down in front of crowds. It may be good to discuss the difference in their mentality towards crowds and how a player can change their mentality if a crowd emerges at a match. What do you think, Dr. Cohn? Yeah, it's a uh, it's very intuitive um, question here because there is definitely... From a professional standpoint, there's the home, what I call the home court advantage, where they'll use that crowd to their advantage to give them intensity, to give them adrenaline, to help them focus even better. I think the best players in the world out there, you know, are able to go deeper into their bubble, deeper into their cocoon when they have people there that are there cheering them on. You know, it seems counterintuitive to think that way, that you have more people there watching you that are for you, and uh, the player can go deeper into the zone. But I think that's what the great players are doing. Now, on the other hand, for amateurs, I think their focus is more on a concept that I call social approval. All right? Now, that's a real broad concept in my work, but basically it says that the player has concerns about what other people think. So, um, so in BB's case, it's not the crowd mentality. It's about the player's mentality about the crowd. So we, you know, we can go back about striving, you know, worrying about fear of failure and striving to avoid failure. It can be similar from this perspective. Um, well, you can look at two sides of the coin here as well. The player that has this fear of embarrassing him or herself is not going to play well when there's bigger crowds because that means there's more at stake for that player. There's more at stake because there's more um, chance for embarrassment if the player doesn't play well. On the other end of the coin, some players want badly to look good. They want respect. This all falls under the category of social approval. They want to be liked. Um, They want others to see them as good players. So now that, that player although focusing on something that's more, um, you could say, positive, feels a pressure or feels a need to, I don't want to say show off, I mean, that's, that's pretty strong, but to, to show off that person's talents and, and however they do that. You know, it could mean winning or it could mean just hitting great shots. So, but in either case, if your focus is on, what the crowd may be thinking or what persons in the crowd may be thinking about your game, then you're not completely focused on your tennis. You're either worried about embarrassing yourself or you're concerned that you're showing off your talents in a positive light. 
And in either case, it's not going to help you focus on the match because they, it becomes pressure and it becomes expectation. So I think the root here, Ian, for me, is players that focus too much on what others think about their game, which we call social approval in my work. Okay. That's really interesting because it, I mean, we're talking about things now, the social approval, approval that you're talking about. I mean, it's, we're getting into some pretty deep psychological, you know, responses and desires and, and wants. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting to me how those things actually get connected so deeply to a sport like tennis. Um, I've got a, a kind of a follow up question for you. I'm just curious what your response would be to this. So, so we're talking about the amateur player and how they become concerned with what the other spectators are thinking of them. You know, do, are, are they going to think I'm a good player or a bad player? You know, wanting to, to maybe show off, like you said, um, or maybe being nervous. Uh, how is it then that professional players oftentimes can, can feed off of that, feed off of the crowd and actually raise their level? Um, what's, what's the mental or, or emotional difference between a player who can actually take a crowd setting and elevate their game and somebody who typically kind of chokes in a, in a situation like that? When they don't have that need or that, that concern, I think, of, the, of that social approval. I think they've, they've learned that, hey, you know what, the only thing that matters is me and my opponent in the court. So um, um, the, <clears throat> part of their, their mentality isn't focused on, um, you know, what the crowd is thinking. Like, for example, you know, I, I worked with um, uh, a junior player that said her, 40% of her focus is on what her parents and other parents are thinking <laughs> about her game, okay? Sure. That's just, you know, that's not going to cut it, all right? At the professional level, like I said, they don't have this huge concern or this need for and worry about what other people are thinking. They're only consumed with what's going on in the court. Now, when they have that home court advantage or when there's a lot of people watching, um, like I said earlier, Ian, I think it drives them further into the zone. It drives them further into what they need to focus on to perform their best. Okay. Um, because they know in order for them to perform their best, they need to focus on a specific set of performance cues you know, the performance cues that are going to help them execute good shots. So to me, when they have a home court advantage or when there's a lot of people watching them, like, you know, center court at Wimbledon, for example, they're able to narrow their focus even more on what's important to execute good shots. And that's really, I think, what separates your, your you know, your good amateurs from your, your top-level professionals. Okay. Great stuff. Thanks for, for answering that question. Uh, let's move on to our third one. And I'd like to try to get to two more, but we'll see. We may run out of time. Our, our next question comes from Sally in Washington State. She wrote and said, A subject I'd love to hear discussed is the inner drive to win, the importance of knowing someone believes, believes in you, the power of your inner will and confidence, and having that attitude in check before you step out onto the courts. Can you talk a little bit about that, kind of the importance of kind of believing in yourself and uh, having confidence in yourself that you can perform well going on to uh, the competitive court? Oh, it's critical. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably the number one thing that your listeners have to harness 
is that inner confidence, that, that inner belief. The biggest mistake that I see players making is they wait until they get into the match to decide how confident they're going to be. We call that leaving confidence up to chance. In other words, if they have a poor warm-up prior to the match, then they'll struggle with confidence early in the match. Or if they drop a couple of games early in the match, then they'll struggle with confidence because they're waiting for their game to arrive before they can feel confident. Um, sure. And that's the, that's the mistake, I think. So from my perspective, athletes in general need to be more proactive with their confidence, need to take responsibility instead of be reactive. Being reactive means, oh, my shots didn't feel great in warm-up, so I guess I'm not going to play great today. That's reactive. Um, uh, I prefer my students to be proactive in that they try to harness and take confidence into the first, um, you know, point of the first set of uh, the first game. That's critical, I think, to give yourself a better chance of playing better early on. Then, then momentum, you can get momentum from that, which is another concept in and of itself, but it's related to confidence. If I can get momentum, then I've got a lot of confidence going on. Because as you know, and we could talk about that in another show, that, that's, that's a huge topic, I think, from a mental game perspective is how to harness the momentum or how to keep the momentum or how to get the momentum if you don't have it. But being proactive with your confidence means that you're going to remember that confidence isn't about the last shot you hit or isn't about that, that 10 minute warm up you had before the match. Confidence is a long-term project. If you've been playing and practicing for six years, that's how long you've been working on your confidence for. And you always have to remember that, that confidence needs to be something that's long-term and enduring and not be on the confidence roller coaster depending upon, you know, your perception of the last shot or the last game of the match. That's not true confidence. If you're losing confidence early in the match very quickly, um, then there's a good indication that you don't have that true confidence that you need. Good stuff. And tell me if I'm wrong here, but I would have to assume then that this is very closely tied to the first question we talked about where Brian was having problems double faulting and, and having pessimistic thoughts or negative attitude and self-fulfilling prophecy type thing. I would have to assume then, Dr. Cohn, that building that long-term confidence is probably very closely tied in with just having uh, positive thoughts and, and you know, picking your target and having the, the process or uh, the ingredients you were talking about. How, how closely tied in are, are those two concepts? Yeah, I would say they're very closely tied in because um, when Brian gets in the match, in the back of his mind, he's going, you know, who's going to show up today? Yeah. Server number <laughs> one or server number two? Right. And that's the start of the doubting process. You're opening up the door for the doubt at that point. Um, and now he's not sure. Confidence-wise, he's not sure who's going to show up for the match. Um, you know, server one or server number two. And that makes it difficult for him to have full confidence in the match. So I do believe, um, you know, being more proactive with his confidence, um, not assuming that he's going to serve great, but just having confidence in a serve prior to the match is going to go a long way. 
Nice. Good stuff. Thanks for tying those two things together. And I want to get to one more question real quickly before we wrap things up. And I want to get to this because it's a question that's near and dear to my own heart when uh, it comes to competition in general, not even just in tennis. And Sally and Brian both touched on this briefly. Brian said, a few a few missed shots and my dad is down on himself badly, especially missed overheads. Any suggestions for correcting that? He's a perfectionist, which makes missed shots especially bothersome to him. And Sally said, I'm still fascinated with the pressure that comes along in real match situations. Does anyone ever feel pressure to be really perfect? What Can you talk just for a couple of minutes, Dr. Cohen, about maybe those of us who are kind of perfectionists by nature, how can we deal with missing shots or missing easy shots? How, how can we keep from getting down on ourselves and angry and kind of falling into a, a downward emotional spiral? Well, if we had about two hours, I could, I could cover this topic <laughs> thoroughly because this is a huge one in my work. I actually created a program called The Parents' Top Dilemma, uh, which was about perfectionism in, in youth sports and kids in sports because it's so rampant. Um, it's even worse when you when you look at sports like um, when you go to skating or, or gymnastics or dance where people are judged on their performance, it gets even worse in those type of sports. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is, it is very um, uh, relevant in tennis as well. Um, the quick answer to that is, I mean, there's so much involved with perfectionism. The quick answer is, well, there's two answers. One is, is the expectations that perfectionists have. Mm-hmm. Perfectionists go in the match thinking that they can't m- miss shots or they can't miss hit shots that they can't double fault, you know, so they have very strict expectations about how they should perform. They, they pretty much think that they look back on their, on their peak performance or their best performance in practice, and they think they should perform that way every single time. So when they don't perform up those expectations, then they lose it. They lose confidence, and, and obviously they lose emotional control and get angry and frustrated. Um, so, so, so the quick answer is you have to manage your expectations going in. The, the other quick answer is you have to be much more accepting of yourself in general when you do make mistakes, which ties into the, what I said about expectations. Being accepting means I'm not perfect. I'm a human. I'm going to make mistakes. It's not going to help me to dwell on those mistakes or beat myself up about those mistakes, but it will help me to learn. And to get better as a player uh, and, and, and know that mistakes will help me grow. Um, so it's very critical for them to let go of the mistake, be more accepting, and take more of a learning approach and a growth approach from their mistakes so they can get better rather than just you know emotionally frustrated with what they're doing. Yeah, it can, and speaking from experience, it can be very difficult to actually accept that something positive can actually come from missing or or losing or or something that you know typically has a negative connotation to it in general and even more so with a somebody who has kind of a perfectionistic nature and I, i've actually written a blog about that about accepting your losses or, or your misses and and learning from it um, and that can be really hard to do it's it's difficult for people like myself to be positive uh, when, when negative things happen on the courts. But 
you know what? I, I guess it's probably me saying that it's negative to miss or negative to lose. I, I bet that's probably just a a product of kind of my nature right there uh, to begin with, isn't it? Just to, just the very fact that I'm saying it's a bad thing to miss. I mean, that's just part of the game, isn't it? It it is, and you have to look at it from a learning perspective. As a matter of fact, I devoted two sessions you know, uh, in my audio program to that one session on letting go of errors and another session on how to deal with the perfectionism as well. Um, as you know, Ian, I just, I, I produced a program just for tennis players called tennis confidence, mental toughness for tournament players. Those two things are so important about managing the perfectionism and learning how to stay composed after errors. If you don't have those elements, it's very difficult to play your best. I agree. Yeah, I know how that goes. Well, let's wrap things up. And Dr. Cohn, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, thank you very much for your time and for the effort that you put into answering the questions here today. And everybody listening, I, I really encourage you to go check out Dr. Cohn's podcast. Again, it's the Tennis Psychology Podcast. Go subscribe to it on iTunes and check out his website at sportspsychologytennis.com. Patrick, uh, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time, and I look forward to hearing more of your shows. Great. Thanks for having me on, Ian. All right. That does it for episode number 150 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. And let's go ahead and get to those holiday greetings now. Just a a couple minutes uh, of those. Several of you called in and participated by just saying hi and giving a a general holiday greeting of your choice. It was great to hear from all of you. Thank you very much for your your participation if you called in. It's definitely something that I'd I'd really like to do again in the future. I I think it's cool to interact with you guys and, and get feedback from you just in general, whether it be the questions or general suggestions for the show or little things like this. It's really cool to hear from listeners of the show and so i i definitely look forward to doing more things like this in the future so without further ado gonna go ahead and get to that and that will close off the show i want to say a a really warm and, and happy new year to all of you listening thank you very much for being a listener of this show and i look forward to producing another full year of the essential tennis podcast and i really truly hope that it helps all of you continue to improve your tennis game that's always been my goal for the show and will continue to be so thank you all for your support as i continue to do it hi essential tennis podcast listeners this is ben from new york and i would like to wish everyone a happy healthy and safe holiday and for those of you in japan I would like to say, Okay, see you later. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Gary Bezaman from Havertown, Pennsylvania, USA. Season's greetings, happy holidays, and all the best in the new year. Hi, Ian. This is Carlotta from New Jersey. I wanted to extend to you and all of your listeners a happy holiday and congratulations on the new addition to your family. Hi, Ian. This is David Goldman, originally from Southern California, but calling you from uh, Jerusalem, Israel. 
I'm a huge fan of your show and want your show to succeed and continue and uh, really appreciate you guys. Want to wish you a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. All the best. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Jay from Western Massachusetts. Holiday greetings to everyone. Bye. This is Anthony from Atlanta, Georgia, and I just wanted to wish the Essential Tennis family a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Play well and have fun. Hi, this is Andrew wishing you holiday greetings from San Francisco and hopefully 2011 will be essential on and off the court. Enjoy. Bye. This is Andrew Webster from Salem, Oregon. Peace on earth and goodwill to all. Hi, this is John in real life from Santa Cruz, California, and I just wanted to wish Ian Royce and everyone in Eastville a merry everything. And thank you all for making it fun for me, not just to learn the game of tennis, but to truly enjoy it. So, happy holidays. Hi, this is Double Z Charles, uh, wishing uh, everyone and their families happy holidays and greetings. I hope you had a great uh, tennis year, and you're looking forward to a great uh, tennis year in 2011, whether it be your game or the professional game. Have a good one, guys. Hey, this is John M., calling from Fort Worth, Texas, and I want to wish everyone happy holidays, and I'd like to congratulate Ian on his 150th podcast. Hi, this is Ben McKee from the great state of Utah, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Take care, and good luck with your tennis. Happy New Year's to you and yours.